0: I'm Katie, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad you and your family are here, and we would love to get connected with you. One easy way you can do that is text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website, theriverchurch.cc, to learn more about us and some upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the gift tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. about you, but as I was singing those songs, I was like, man, we could do this just the whole gathering. (laughs) Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that, and the tech team for doing everything. Just an awesome morning of worship and just reflecting on who God is in our life, right? It's just so awesome to be able to do that. I guess I'll just have to wait for tonight to get the whole gathering of worship, right? So I just want to encourage you again to be a part of that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, uh, we have been walking through Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and really and truly, as we start to, we're going to conclude this series. We've got maybe this week and next week, and we'll be done. And then we'll be going into our, our Christmas series. But, but really, all through Jesus' message, this sermon that he's preaching, he's been walking through teaching us how to think differently and see things differently. I mean, it's just been a common theme throughout his whole message. I mean, you go back to the Beatitudes when he says, blessed is the poor. Well, no one in their right mind goes, oh man, it's awesome, I'm poor. Great. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Oh man, this is fantastic. I can't wait to starve and be thirsty. Right? He's challenging our thinking. The way we think about things, the way we see things, and he's challenging us, and we walked through this last week, to look at things through a spiritual lens to really seek after our spiritual need. And when it comes down right to what our spiritual need is, the core, if you will say, component is our heart. See, Jesus, all through this message, he's just been teaching us over and over again to look at things from a different perspective. Think about things in a different light. See things in a different way. Examine, if you will, the heart. And here today, it's not going to be any different. Jesus is going to walk us through some texts that really fundamentally challenge the way we think, challenge the way we see things, and ultimately challenge the way we act out what we believe. And this is this is not comfortable. This is not easy. Usually, I mean, I'm 41 years old. I'll be 42 here in January. Man, I've got some ways set in my life, right? Like I got certain things that I like it a certain way. And when something comes in and says, hey, no, you need to change the way you think you need to change the way you see things. It's always a little bit of a challenge initially for me. Maybe you guys can handle it just fine. But for me, it's usually like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about here? I've been doing it this way for my whole life so far. This is okay for me. It's worked for me. We usually come, we kind of get defensive. Maybe some of us get aggressive about it. But Jesus is constantly challenging the way we think, what we see, and how we act as believers and as non-believers and so today he's going to walk us through some passages that are going to be disruptive. So let's take a look at it. Really what Jesus is, is going to answer this question, if you will. He's going to walk us through some ideas. He's going, to, he's going to ask us this question, how we confront directly my thoughts, my sight, and my actions. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says these words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thief break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thief do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there... For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray and kind of walk through the challenge that Jesus is really, truly confronting all of us with today. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children. Lord, we desire to learn from you your words. So Lord, I just ask that your spirit move in all of us Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would lead me and guide me in my own words so that I am removed and you are are shown and revealed to everyone here who's watching online or present in the room. Lord, we desire your presence. We desire your Spirit to move in each and every one of us, to, to, to show us things that we need to see. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. So as I look at this text... I really divided it into three things. We see three things Jesus is talking about. Our treasures, the way we see things, and who our master is. And so when you break this down, I really look at it like this, because the, really the sole theme of this passage is where our treasure is, there also is our heart, the condition of our heart. And so when I look at treasure, I, I, mo- I say this is the motive of our heart. In essence, this is what drives the motive of our heart. Where is our treasure And when we talk about vision, we'll get into that, we'll see this is the condition of our heart. And then finally, as we walk through what it means to serve or allow Jesus to be our master, it really comes down to the question of where is the commitment of our heart. And so let's walk through what Jesus is teaching us, starting off in the very first, the treasures, the motive of our heart, if you will, the way we think about things, whether they are eternal or temporary. Every single aspect of this passage is dealing with the, this, this overview umbrella, if you will, of whether it's eternal or whether it's temporary. The way we think, the way we view things, the way we serve, are they rooted in something that is eternal or is it rooted in something that is temporary? And so when we look at Jesus' words where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, we see the contrast versus treasures in heaven, the temporary versus the eternal. And Jesus breaks this first passage down into really this aspect of these things that are earthly versus heavenly, temporary versus eternal. And so what is earthly treasures? What are these temporary treasures that Jesus is warning us about? Actually, you can go back into the Old Testament and you look at a man by the name of Job, a very wealthy man, by the way. In fact, by our standards, he would have probably been the wealthiest of the wealthy. Very affluent man. And if you're familiar with the story of Job, Job had an absolute crisis in his life. Not only was all of his wealth removed from him, but his very own children were taken from him. Horrible situation. But I want to show you something that Job goes back to and what he looks at and helping us understand this element of Earthly treasures. Job 31, beginning in verse 23, Job says these words For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced His majesty. Verse 24 If I have made gold my trust, circle that word gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. See, see, Job is talking about the condition of his heart, where his trust was, where his confidence was, where his hope was. And he's having this conversation about the earthly treasures that he had that were taken from him. As we continue in this passage, he continues to say, verse 26, If I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart was secretly enticed. Again, there's the condition that that Job is reflecting. If my heart was enticed to trust, to be confident in my earthly treasures, and my mouth was kissed or my mouth has kissed my hand. We were talking about this earlier. This is the aspect where Job says, "Man, I was so full of myself. I was kissing my own hand. I was so in my own realm. I had it all. I had all the wealth, and I was so confident and I was so trusting in my own ability. I was. It's this whole idea of kiss the ring of the or the hand of the king. Job would be is what he's really illustrating. He's like, listen, I thought I if I had been enticed by my heart and I was kissing my own hand, I would have thought of myself." as somebody with a big ego. But look at what he says as he continues. If, that's a big if. This also would be an iniquity. These are Job's very next words. It would have been a sin to be punished by the judge, for I would have been false to God above. Had Job put his confidence, his trust, his hope, in himself, in his ego, in all the things that he had accumulated, earthly treasures, he would have been denying God. And it would have been a false hope, a false confidence, a false trust in his substances. Proverbs also speaks of this. If you're familiar with Solomon, King Solomon, in scripture, it is written of him that he was the most wealthiest, like there was none that was as wealthy as he was in times past, nor will there ever be anybody as, wealth as wealthy as he was in times to come. And here are some of the words that this wealthy man, I want you to understand, this isn't, these aren't words coming from people that didn't understand earthly treasures. These are words coming from men who, by all standards, beyond anything that I have ever even seen, understood earthly treasures. Listen to what he says in Proverbs. He's the author of Proverbs, Proverbs 11, verse 2 through 5. Now listen, we're going to cover a lot of scripture, so I'm not expecting everybody to turn there. I just want to give you this caveat. You can follow along the screen. There's a lot of scripture we're going to try to run through today. So you can jot down the address, if you will, the reference, and look at them later. But I'm I'm going to make sure that they're on the screen. You can follow along, and I encourage you to read the words that God gave us right? Look at the screen. These are words from God's words, his scripture. Hear what he is saying about this aspect of our earthly treasures versus our heavenly treasures. Proverbs 11 verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroy them. Riches Earthly treasures do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Here is Proverbs, a man who understood wealth. If anybody could buy his way into heaven, it was this guy. And here, what does he tell us in this passage in Proverbs? That when the day the Lord returns, the day of judgment, the day of his wrath, when that day comes, doesn't matter how big your bank account is. It doesn't matter how much treasures you have laid up on this earth. There's only one thing that will keep you from dealing with the consequences of sin. And he even alludes to this earlier, this aspect of righteousness. And of course, we know there's only one man that was truly righteous, his name being Jesus. The righteousness of the blameless keep his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Solomon, again, in Ecclesiastes, has some more to say about this aspect of earthly riches. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says this, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. They won't be satisfied. Money is not the answer, in other words. This is the guy that had all the money in the world, and he's sitting here telling us, hey, listen, money isn't going to satisfy He continues, nor he who loves wealth will be satisfied with his income. Now, I added that will be satisfied because it's a continuation from the other sentence. In other words, it doesn't matter how much wealth the person has or how much income they have coming in. That's not going to satisfy them. He goes on, and this, he says, this also is vanity. And if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes a whole bunch of things and describes a whole bunch of things that are vain that are useless or pointless to put your faith and hope and trust and confidence in. And as he continues, he says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What is, what is Solomon saying in this passage? He's saying, listen, and, and we've seen this in our, even in our current day and age, right? What happens if someone maybe wins the lottery or all of a sudden has a, a grand inheritance? Man, their friends increase real quick. Uh, there's a lot of people at the table all of a sudden. We see this in real life. This is what Solomon is referencing in Ecclesiastes. like, listen, just because you get money doesn't mean that all of a sudden, all you as an owner get to do is watch. You get to see. The problems increase. The headaches increase. The sleeplessness increases. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Ecclesiastes and Solomon is talking about something that happens really and truly a bad business deal and the bad business deal leaves this man who had some form of earthly treasure left with nothing he's a father of a child and he goes I have nothing to offer you I have nothing to give you because his whole hope his whole confidence and his whole trust was left in his earthly treasures and in this passage, Solomon continues and he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. What is Solomon walking us through in this understanding of earthly treasures? What he's saying is this, man, listen, you can toil your whole life. You can build the biggest bank account, you can have the biggest house, you can have the nicest, fanciest new car, but guess what? When the day of judgment comes, when you die, none of that stuff are you going to be able to take with you to the other side, if you will. You're left being vexed, angered, anxiety, stressing over all of the things and stuff that you're toiling over, and then when the day of death comes, when the day comes that you have to stand before God... None of that stuff is going to matter. I love the fr- naked as you came into this world and naked will you go. You can't take anything with you, not even your clothes. It's a very convicting passage as we understand what earthly treasures are. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes, I just want to throw this in here. Solomon, a wise man, a man who had wealth, who understand and studied many things in life. The whole conclusion of Ecclesiastes is given to us in chapter 12, the last few verses in verses 13 and 14. He goes, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. In other words, all of his inquiries, all of his things that he searched for, fulfillment, for satisfaction, for for confidence, for trust, all the things that I've sought out, here it is. This is my conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is, in fact, The whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it was good or whether it was evil. See, the secret things, even even in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is referencing the condition of our heart. What motivates our heart in this aspect of treasure and even rewards? We see this even taught in Jesus' sermon. The rewards of the hypocrites, the mask wearers, the performers, if you will, versus those who seek in secret the things of God. He, he alluded to this aspect to both the way we give to the needy, the way we pray, the way we fast. And that he teaches us there is, in fact, a reward, a treasure, a heavenly treasure, if you will. So what is this heavenly treasure? What does it mean when Jesus is telling us, hey, do not lay up earthly treasures, but have heavenly treasures. Heavenly treasures that do not get corroded, that aren't destroyed by the season. I mean, we're familiar with rust in this state. The car doesn't rust out. <laughs> How many of you would buy a car that would never rust out, right? Like, We like that, we, especially in this state where we rely heavily on salt, right? Well, here Jesus is talking about this heavenly treasure that doesn't, doesn't corrode, doesn't erode, that is, that is permanent, that thieves can't come in and take away. Psalm 62, verses 7 through 12, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my might, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. What is he saying? What is the author of this passage saying? First and foremost, notice those words trust. Where is his trust? Where is his confidence, if you will? It's in God who is his salvation, his refuge, his mighty rock. And then he talks about these people who are of low estate and those who are of a high estate. What is this author's telling us? As you continue in the Psalms, he says, In the balance they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. What he's saying is this. When they die, whether they had money, earthly treasures or not. That last breath, when it's breathed, it's the same, regardless of your financial status. Where is your trust? Where is your confidence? Where is the motivation, if you will, of your heart? He continues and he says in verse 10, put no trust in exhortations, set no vain hopes on robbery, If riches increase, here it is, set not your heart on them. Your riches aren't going to save you. Your riches aren't going to get you into heaven, if you will. Your riches aren't going to last forever in eternity. Again, this main umbrella theme, things that are of eternal value versus things that are of temporary or earthly value. Luke, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching and someone calls out to him and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's looking for earthly, earthly treasures. Hey man, there is an inheritance. My brother's got control of it. Jesus, man, can't you step in and tell my big brother to give it to me? I think I deserve some money. That's basically what he's saying to Jesus. And I want you to see Jesus' response to him. He says, uh, Jesus responded to him, but he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to this man, take care. Be cautious. There's a warning here. Be careful. Be not on and be on your guard against all covetousness, the motivations of our heart, what we look at, what we see, what we start saying, hey, I really want that, the covetousness. Because he goes on, he says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, your life is not determined. Your identity, really and truly, is not determined by your bank account, by the wealth you may have accumulated. Your abundance, your life is not consistent, or it consists in the abundance of your possessions you will jump down to verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build. He tells this story of a man. Jesus tells this parable of a man who had a lot of wealth. Again, we're not talking about people that are not dealing with wealth. This man, he he in his wisdom thought this would be a great thing to do. He had so much stuff. He's like, man, my barns. And this is so true if you've ever built a barn. What's the saying that goes with it? You never build it big enough, right? Because it gets filled really quick. I know this. Right and, and here's this man, he's like, oh man, I just built these barns and they're packed full. I'm going to tear these small barns down, I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'll get them really, really full. And if you look back down here to verse 18, he says, I will share, I will store my grain and my goods, verse 19, and I will say to my soul. I'll say to my soul, I'll tell my inner, my heart, my, my person, I'll tell my soul, soul. You have made, you have ample goods. You've made it. You're good to go. That's basically what he's saying. I'm paraphrasing here. Man, you've got all the money you need. You've got all the things you need. Soul, you are good. Not recognizing he's never dealt with the most significant thing that needs to be dealt with in all humanity. And that's his relationship with God. He had the big bank account, he had the big barns, he had so much money and wealth, he could tear down the small barns and big, bigger ones. And he was so confident in what he had, earthly treasures, that he could tell his soul, hey soul, you're good. You're good to go. You have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Dealing with the spiritual issues rather than the earthly issues. Paul teaches some aspects of this in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this as he's teaching a young pastor how to teach some important things. Paul teaches Timothy in verse, verse 8 of chapter 6, "...but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires." That plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. Think about it. It is through this craving. You could even put the word lust in there. It is through this personal craving that, oh man, I got to have. Got to have the next and greatest. And of course, our world, if we're being honest, our society is really good at telling us what we got to have right the next iphone the next computer the next car the next you you call it it's there everything's designed in our society to tell us listen you if you don't have this you're not going to be okay that's the whole design behind a marketing campaign i took a marketing class in college and the professor literally told me this we are lying to our customers Because what we're selling them and telling them is that whatever product we are marketing will, in fact, satisfy them. But if that were true, then they would never come back. So we are telling them that this product, for this moment and this time, will satisfy them. But we know, this is a legit professor taught me this in in marketing, we know that if that happens, we'll be out of business. So we're telling them a lie. This is our marketing world. I learned this from a university in this, in this state. This is what we teach about marketing. It's just the reality. And most of us recognize it. Some of us don't. The way the marketer goes to tell us, hey, listen, this will satisfy you. This will complete everything you need. Man, if you just have this, then you'll be in like Flint. You'll be good. You'll be okay. Senseless and harmful desires. That plunge people into ruin and destruction, this craving, this craving that the same have wandered away from even from this craving, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That word pain means intense anxiety, anguish, grief, or emotional pain. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 17, Paul continues and teaches this to young pastor Timothy, for as for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty. That word haughty is prideful. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but that seems to constantly be a theme. From Job to to the passage in Psalms, To hear when when Paul is teaching it to to Timothy, there's this aspect of pride. See, the root of pride is when we go, God, I got it under control. I'm good. I don't need you anymore. Pride is dangerous. And here, what Paul is warning Timothy to teach to those who are rich is, listen, don't let your riches create a pride in you that is devastating. Devastating. He says, as he continues, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, the temporary nature of riches, but on God. Here's the heavenly treasures, if you will. But put your hope, put your confidence, put your trust on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, that is, those who are confident and, and relying and their hope is on God, they are to do good to be rich in doing good, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. I don't know if you've ever looked at Paul as a financial manager or a financial advisor, but here he is laying down some significant teachings on how to financially plan for your future. He says, be generous, share the things that God gives you. And listen, that doesn't necessarily mean if you only have a big bank account. Doing good works. It could mean the very same thing that you see where where there is a lady who comes in and she only has two pennies. And if she offers them to God, the Lord Jesus praises her for actions. In, In common terms, it could be like this. I've got a loaf of bread. I might not have anything else. I might not have a house. I might not have a car, a big bank account, but I have a loaf of bread. If I see somebody next to me who's hungry, I can split that loaf of bread and say, here you go, and trust the Lord that that half a loaf is just as good as the whole loaf. That's called being generous and sharing. It doesn't matter how big your bank account is. We have this ability to do good things when we see people in need. This goes back to the very beginning teaching. When Jesus talks about, listen, when you see somebody in need, when you, when you give to the needy, don't do it for a show. Do it for the purpose of honoring God and what he has done for you. Peter goes on and he speaks in, the, in 1 Peter chapter 1 as we are talking about this heavenly treasure. Peter says these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's that word. What are we hoping in? What are we trusting in? What are we being confident in? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, to a treasure, to a hope, to a promise, to an inheritance that is, and I want you to see these words, it is imperishable. That means rust doesn't destroy it. It is undefiled. Nobody can take it away from you. It's unfading. It lasts forever. It's not temporary, it's eternal. It's kept in heaven for you, as the passage continues. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The promise. The promise of being resurrected and being brought into the presence of God. The eternal value of the treasure of Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage going back to Matthew chapter 6, we see Jesus walking into this aspect of our vision. He walked through this aspect of our treasure, the motivation of our hearts. And he then goes into this story, or this illustration, if you will, of our eyes and our vision and what we see and how we look at things. I call this the condition of our heart. Being able to actually see ourselves in our own condition, our heart in its own condition, with what we would call 2020 spiritual vision. Do we actually look at our heart condition and go, man, I can see myself the way God sees me. I can see my condition of my heart the way God sees it. This is actually something that is really, it's interesting to see this and compare the the passage in here in Matthew chapter 20 or 6 verse 22 and compare what Luke says in Luke 11. In, In Matthew he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness when you compare the passage in luke they 're very similar. they say the very same things it 's really interesting to see Matthew portrays the negative outcome, if you will, whereas Luke portrays the positive outcome of our vision, our eyes, the condition of our heart in matthew twenty two uh, in, in matthew six twenty two Matthew says this, if then the light in you is darkness, if, if the condition of your heart is actually darkness, he goes on and he says, how great is that darkness? Matthew is c- causing us to think through and to evaluate the really the dark condition of our heart, the sp- dark spiritual condition of our heart without Christ. Luke says it like this, and I'll just share the last verse. Verse 35 is where I begin. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. But Luke portrays a positive spin. If then your whole body is full of light, not full of darkness, but full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It's interesting to see how these two disciples portray the same story, the same subject matter regarding our vision. One talks about how dark, the darkness that is really in us truly is dark. Where the other portrays this understanding of when we have the light of Christ in us, how really light, we, how much light it actually gives us. If we were to shut the lights off right now in this room, we would understand this a lot easier be darkness. I mean we have some lights we'd probably need to black out so those those windows so we didn't see any light in here. We'd be stumbling. Let's say someone flipped the, the fire emergency with all the lights out. Just take a minute and think about what kind of chaos would exist. Be tripping over people, accidentally knocking people down, stubbing our toes. Not fun. Obviously, when we look at the light in this room and we can see around, we go, oh, yeah, I can see. I can, I can know what direction to go. I can know where to walk. This is the same example that Jesus is trying to help us understand when it comes to recognizing the condition of our heart. Is our heart full of darkness? Or is there the light of Christ in it? Paul talks about this in Acts when he comes to know the Lord, the very gospel message that Paul received on the road to Damascus. He uses the same imagery, this aspect of what we see and the light that is in our life. If you will follow with me in Acts 26, verse 15, he says, this is Paul's recounting of his, his, his salvation at the road on Damascus, verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. It's interesting, the language used here has a lot to do with the things we see and the vision that Paul has, the purpose, his servanthood. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. What is he going to send them to do? In the next verses, you see such a profound understanding of this light versus darkness illustration. He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's conversion. What he's literally saying is, listen, when I did not have Christ, when I did not know Christ, I was walking. The condition of my heart was utter darkness. What I was wearing was no glasses and it was impossible for me to see. It was as though I was walking in a pitch dark room trying to navigate where to go. I don't know if you've ever watched this. I, I find this interesting. I've seen a couple of YouTube clips where little children, like really, like I would say one, maybe two years old, have poor vision, and you get to watch them put their glasses on for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever seen these clips. It's amazing to watch these kids' face light up the first time they see their parents, their father, their mother. It's like, whoa. It's so awesome to see because children don't tend to hide their expressions. It's right there, man. As soon as they put those glasses on and they can see, they're like, whoa. And they get this big old smile on their face. This is, in essence, what what Paul is talking about. Man, listen, I was walking in darkness. I couldn't see. My vision was all distorted. The condition of my heart was off. And then I met Jesus. And I put these spiritual glasses on. And then I got to see my father for the first time. And I recognized my sin was forgiven. And I had a purpose. And I had a whole new thing to look at, a whole new thing to put my trust and my hope and my confidence in. This is an amazing story. Paul is saying that when I was walking in darkness, I was literally belonged to Satan. And when I came to know Jesus, I I changed my identity from belonging to Satan to belonging to God. Such a powerful illustration of the gospel. And when we talk about this this element of, of salvation and what it means and understanding what Jesus is laying out for us when it comes to these passages of recognizing the condition of our heart, is it full of darkness or is there light in it? Jesus says in John chapter 1, speaking of the person of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that is the person of Jesus Christ that all might believe through him. He was not the light, that is speaking of John the Baptizer, but came to bear witness about the light, that is speaking of Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And here's the sad part when you read the rest of these verses. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But this is the hopeful part, verse 12. But to all, every single person, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave the right, he gave the right to become the children of God. These people were not born, not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. This is what Paul is referencing. I put on those glasses and I recognized my identity was a child of God. The condition of my heart had to be examined And it had to be changed from darkness to light. The light that makes us see the things that we're supposed to see is the light known as Jesus. So as we get close to concluding here, when we look at this last element that Jesus walks through, he's walked through the motive of our heart, our treasures. He's walked through the condition of our heart, the way we see things, the way we examine ourselves and examine our heart. All of these things lead to, ultimately, the final conviction, if you will. Am I going to be committed to God? The commitment of the heart. Jesus, as he shares in this last part, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In this particular example, money is the illustration. But in that phrase, I believe you can put a lot of different things. You cannot serve God, and you cannot serve your addiction, whatever that may be. You cannot serve God, and desire to serve Him and do what He wants, and ignore The sin in your life. In other words, you cannot serve God and you cannot serve whatever sin you're hanging on to. It's Very, very convicting. I don't know if you've ever had two bosses. Has anybody here had two bosses? I know I have. It gets really difficult. It puts you in an awkward position. You're like, ah, manager one told me to do this, but manager two told me to do that, and they're not in the same page. You ever experience that? Like, who, do I, who am I supposed to listen to? Right? It's, it's awkward. And I, if you're a business owner, I would recommend you never give your employees two bosses. It just creates chaos. Creates tension and awkwardness on so many levels. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, as an employee, you have to say, I like his idea better than his idea. I like his decision-making skills better than his decision-making skills. And you can't, you can't do both. You can try, but you usually find yourself not fully committed to one and not fully, you're kind of stuck in the middle, if you will. This is what Jesus is telling us when it comes to the commitment of our heart. And we see this illustrated throughout all, all kinds of passages in scriptures. I can share with you several. Joshua, man, when he goes, he speaks of in Joshua 24, he says, and if, if if in fact it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But Joshua made a statement. Joshua made a statement. For as for me and my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord is what Joshua speaks of. Man, there's there's passages in Samuel dealing with serving the Lord. In Kings, when Elijah, first Kings, when Elijah came near to all the people, he said to them, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? And he really just flat out tells the Israelites, make a choice, make a choice, Make a decision in your heart to commit to one thing or the other. And in this example with Elijah, it is either serve God or serve Baal. That's, that's a tough thing to walk through. Listen, if you're sitting in the, <laughs> that middle zone, you're trying to figure out, man, I want to really serve the Lord, but I want one foot in this world. You're going to find yourself torn apart. I'm going to tell you the same thing Elijah did. Make a choice. Pick. Listen, if God is who you say he is, he's worthy of your praise, he's worthy of your trust, he's worthy of your confidence, he's never let you down, then serve him with a complete committed heart. But if you're walking back and forth, well, I'm not really sure. Man, I've got all this other stuff. I know my money's good. I got a big bank account. Man, I really like this sin. It's really convenient for me. I know you probably won't hear a pastor say this, but I'm going to tell you, if that's where you're going and that's where your heart is, Go for it. Let that be your God. What you will find, and I'm going to speak from personal experience, what you will find it is a miserable, unfulfilling, temporary, unsatisfying God that you will choose to serve. It will leave you broken and empty with, at the end of the day, nothing to show forth. Going back to that example of the man that Solomon talked about. Who had nothing to give to his kids. Listen, I'm not gonna give my kids money, wealth, or anything like that, but what I can give them, what I can give them that will never, ever tarnish, will never fall apart, will never rust, is a relationship with Jesus. I can point him to who Jesus is, and my prayer and my hope for my children is they know who Jesus is because that will last forever. I can fill their bank accounts, sure. But what is that going to do them, do for them in the long run? So listen, if we're here today and you're, you're, you're saying, like, listen, man, I've never been confronted with these things. This is Jesus. This is what he does. He challenges our thinking. He challenges the way we view things. He really gets to the core of the matter and tells us to examine our heart. Really and truly examine it. Are we motivated by things that are temporary? Are we motivated by the eternal things, the things of Jesus, the things of God? When he tells us to examine our heart, do we we examine and go, man, yeah, there's some some darkness in my heart. Holy cow, I better deal with this. The only light that can shine light and get rid of darkness is the light of Jesus. Are we examining in our hearts, in our lives, man, there's some darkness in my heart I got to deal with. When it comes to believers, are we, are we willing to say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm committed. I am committed to the things of God. I'm, I'm going to serve God, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's hard to do, even though it might not be the popular thing to do. I'm choosing to serve God. Just as Joseph said it when he was speaking, as for me in my house, I will choose to serve God. I will make him my priority, my confidence, my trust, my hope. Everything about me is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and the promises of God in my life. There's nothing more reliable than those things. I choose to serve God. I can give you a lot more passages. Paul speaks about this in Romans, Colossians and Galatians. James speaks about it in James chapter 4. But I'm going to end with 1 John chapter 2. This is how he writes it, and this is the words he uses. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the treasures of earth, the motivation of the heart, and the desires of the eyes, the condition of our heart, the things we look at, the way we examine the things that God tells us to look at. And the pride of life. The commitments and of the commitments of our heart. What we are choosing. We're, that's really the pride of life is really saying, God, I want to be committed to you. I like being the idea of being committed to you, but I'm going to choose my own thing. I'm going to live my life in my own way. I'm going to ignore the instructions. Maybe one day I'll listen to you, but I, I got things figured out. I'm going to live in my pride. It's the lack of committing to the things of God. John says, is not, is not from the Father all these things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not, these things are not from the Father, but it is from the world. When the world is passing away. It's temporary. It's temporary. It's passing away, along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, Jesus in Matthew 6 is walking us through the temporary versus the eternal. And we see this laid out throughout a lot of Scripture. And there's a lot of things that our hearts get stuck on that are temporary, that are short-lived, that aren't very long. And Jesus is pointing our hearts to the things that really matter, the eternality of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the instructions for our life, even when they are difficult. Lord, we thank you for challenging the way we think, the way we see things. Lord, we, we, we need to be challenged over and over again in our life in the way we act. Lord, I pray this morning that you would work, work in my heart, work in my life, reveal things in my own life that I need to deal with, Lord. And do that for all of us in this, in this building that's watching online, Lord. You have the power. My words mean nothing, Lord. Your spirit can move and change where I can do nothing. You're the only one that can work, and so we ask you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.